Good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the elders here um, at Life Church. And um, we are starting a new preaching series, a short one, but a new one this morning. And um, uh, little Etty has got into a habit over the last few nights um, where at about 1 or 1.30 in the morning, she wakes because that's when she's hungry, um, but she gives the best smiles in those moments. And so you're at a crossroads as a parent. Do I engage with the cutest kind of moments she does in 24 hours, or do I try and ignore her and say, no, sleep time? Um, this morning, there is a sense that uh, I believe God will be putting his finger on a few raw nerves as I bring uh, what I believe the passage is saying, which has some challenge in it. But I just want to reassure you that it is in the darkest nights that the love and kindness of God is the most brilliant and bright. Uh, and so we will receive challenge this morning. And if our hearts are open to receive it, I, I believe probably all of us will. Uh, but it is in those moments the grace of God shines the most brightly. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be um, looking at two little chapters of the Bible. We're going to be looking at the book of Haggai, which is a very short book. Uh, but we're going to be uh, doing that for the next four weeks. If you'd like to find it, if you um, brought a physical Bible, you can go to Matthew's Gospel and just reverse by three little books, or you can look it up in the context. But um, why don't you find that now if you'd like to? Um, as I explain a little bit why we're looking at the book of Haggai. So why are we looking at this book? Well, firstly, the obvious answer is because of Scripture. It's God's Word. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for, for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. So it's all good. Secondly, we're looking at Haggai because we believe as a church family that the whole of scripture is God's word, not just our favourite bits. And so we very deliberately preach through a big variety of what God says in scripture. Now, we can't do it all in one year because it's a big book. Have you ever tried to read it in one year? It takes some time. But as a church family, you might have noticed that we try and cover quite a range of different parts of Scripture. So we've uh, spent some time in the last year or two looking at two of the New Testament letters, Ephesians by Paul and first letter from Peter. We've uh, spent time in the book of Acts, looking at a New Testament narrative, the early church being birthed. We spent last summer in a few of the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, as they're called at the end of the book. And we did a big doctrinal series, God Is where we dipped in and out of lots of parts of the Bible as we looked at who God is. And then most recently, we looked at the first six chapters of Ezra, a Old Testament historical narrative. And so this is telling some of the history of God's people. But this, Haggai, is different to all of them. Not different in a major way because it's still God's word. It's about God's people. It's God speaking through his people to us. Uh, but this is a prophetic book. This is kind of the direct words of God to someone called a prophet in the Old Testament. And it's called a minor prophet. The only reason it's called minor, though, is because it's very short. It's two chapters. There's nothing minor about its content. And so that's the second reason we're looking at this book, because we want to be covering a whole range of God's words. We want to, we want to make sure we don't have dusty pages in our Bible that we try and ignore. Uh, but the third and final reason is because if you've been here with us over the summer, you'll know that we looked at the first six chapters of Ezra. And the first six chapters of Ezra speak into a unique part of Israel's history, the, the Old Testament people of God. And it's in this, this exact context that Haggai prophesies. And so these next four weeks are going to be a bit like a flashback episode. 
You know, on good American TV series, once in a while, the directors clearly get a bit bored of the normal storyline and they do a flashback episode. And you go back to a part of the storyline that maybe was skipped over or maybe started before the series began. And you get to fill in some of the gaps in the characters and the story. Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to flash back to a time in Ezra chapter five. That was only three weeks ago. But we're going to look at that time in detail. We're going to see what did God say in that time? What was God doing? You might, um, here's a few verses from um, the end of Ezra chapter four and the beginning of Ezra five, just to put us in context. It says this, Ezra four, the last verse. Then the work of the house of God that's in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. Remember that date, second year of Darius. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And so, as we start this series in Haggai, we go back to these exact verses and we ask the question, Haggai, what did you say? What did you say which was so effective in helping the people of God restart building the temple? So let's go to our passage, Haggai chapter one, and let's just start with the first verse. We're gonna walk through chunk by chunk through the first chapter this morning, but let's just start in the first verse. And it says this, in the second year of Darius the king, oh, we've heard that before. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So I said this was a bit like a flashback episode. The other great thing I love of a good American TV series is it's got to start with a previously on the book of Ezra, doesn't it? And so what's happened previously in Ezra chapter one to six? Well, if you've been here over the summer, you might be a bit bored of this because you know a bit of the history, but for everyone else, we're about 500 years before Jesus would come, 500 BC. And at this point in Israel's history, they've for generation after generation been rejecting God their God, the God of Israel. And God warned him. He said, no, if you carry on rejecting me, eventually I will kick you out of the promised land. And exactly that happens. The people have been kicked out of the promised land. What's worse is the Babylonian empire destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But there's hope. That's what we've read in the chapters of Ezra. There's hope because after a number of decades of being in exile, the Persian emperor who's now in charge, Cyrus, he says, actually, you can go back and you can rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But after being back for a couple of years in the promised land, actually the great progress, the hope that was meant to be fulfilled grinds to a halt. They stop working on the temple, why? Because their neighbours don't like it. The other people who lived in the surrounding regions start to oppose them and they manage to say a few loose words to the imperial rulers at the time and say, look, you've got to stop the project. And so the, the force, the pressure comes and the people of God stop building the temple. And where we find ourselves at the beginning of the book of Haggai, where we find ourselves in Ezra chapter five that we read a few weeks ago, the context of here, is that for 16 years, the temple of God is laying ruins. For 16 years, the people of God have been so afraid that they haven't continued the work. And so the book of Haggai begins in the second year 
of Darius the king, after 16 years of silence, God speaks. And this is what he says. Verse two. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 16 years where the temple has been left in ruin, 16 years where the people of God have been in the promised land, but now haven't been doing the thing that God sent them back to the promised land to do. But what was happening during that time? Ezra doesn't tell us. We don't really know what happens from the accounts of Ezra, but Haggai hints. What have the people of God been doing in those 16 years? They'd settled. The people of God had settled and they'd settled for less. The opposition that put fear in their hearts had evolved. That fear had evolved actually into a sense of apathy and comfort and a shrugging of the shoulders because the people had become comfortable. You can almost hear the conversation of the returned exiles in the town squares. Oh, gosh, it's good to be home. I mean, the, the neighbours, they're a nightmare, aren't they? They're just terrible. But the houses here, they're, they're better than anything we could have got in Babylon or Susa. I've got my own property here. You know, I can have my family around whenever I want without asking permission. They even let me keep a goat in my front room and I don't need to ask a governor. It's great. You know, it's not perfect, but it suits me. The people of God had settled. They'd settled for less. But actually, if we think about it, had they settled for less? I mean, they had all that they wanted. They had their panelled houses. Panelled houses, that's kind of Old Testament Bible talk for, you've got a pretty nice place to live. There's comfort, dare I say, even luxury. If we're honest, the fact that the temple was in ruin didn't really affect their lifestyles. And so as Haggai quotes them, no, now isn't the time to rebuild the temple because what's the rush? We have everything we want. You've probably noticed everything in our lives these days is a subscription service, isn't it? It's an odd thing about living in the modern world. You don't buy music anymore. You sign up to something like Spotify and you suddenly have access to a world of music, a library bigger than you could even conceive of being built. You don't buy a phone anymore. You sign up to a 12-month or 24-month or 36-month contract. Even digital things like Microsoft Word, you have to sign up for a subscription. Someone explain that to me. I don't understand that. You sign up, you pay, and you receive the service. You give the company what they want and they give you what you want. I wonder, do we sometimes see church like that? Is church another service where we pay our money, we, we turn up each week, and then we kind of think, well, I've done my bit. Church now has to do his bit, its bit for me. We ask questions like, is this the right church for me? And we go home and over Sunday lunch, we say things like, well, church wasn't quite what I had hoped for today. Maybe this is even how we see our relationship with God. Sometimes a bit like he's the AA or the RAC, a bit of a, in case of emergencies, breakdown service. 
Well, when we need him, we get on our knees and we pray, but the rest of the time we forget the part of the Lord's prayer that Phil taught us last week, your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done, slips to the back of our mind. Are we in it for what we want or what he wants? Because the returned exiles settled for less. But if they were honest, it didn't cost them much because they had sacrificed what was important to God, not what was important to them. We keep reading from verse five. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. The people prioritise their comfort. And so their comfort is what God starts to take from them. And he makes it clear. Consider your ways. Think about what's happening. Open your eyes and realise I am taking it away. In this passage that we're reading this morning, what we see very clearly is God disciplines his people. Now, it's worth a a little tangent, a little thinking about how we read the Old Testament at this moment. Uh, Because when we read passages like this, it's really important to understand the differences and the similarities between the Old Testament people of God and us as the New Testament, the New Covenant people of God. Because the returned exiles here were under the Old Covenant. They were under the old agreement, what's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's called Mosaic, not because it's made up of little pretty tiles, but because Moses was the one who mediated it. And and under this covenant, obedience of the nation was blessed with material blessings, okay? So when the nation obeyed God, there were good crops. There was uh, peace from enemies. There was health and fertility. But when the nation disobeyed God, that would lead to failed food supplies, disease, and eventually, as we see, the the kind of book of Ezra starts to tell the end of that story, exile. So that's the old covenant. And you can read about that in places like Exodus and in Deuteronomy. These were promises God made with his people. But we are under a different covenant. That's really important to know because Christ Jesus fulfilled the old covenant. So now we are under a new covenant. Interesting, if you ever read um, what Jesus says when he institutes communion, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so Jesus, by dying on the cross, by being resurrected, has made a new covenant with us where he took all of the curse from our sin and we have received all of his blessings. Paul summarises it really well in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we receive all the blessings of Christ. He takes all of our curses. This is the covenant we're now under. So that's just important to know because when we read passages like this, we think actually God is speaking through all the scriptures, so it's applicable to us, but what's the differences? And so now material blessing isn't the sign of God's favour on us, okay? Praise God for material blessing, but that's not the sign of God's favour on us, okay? the spiritual blessings that that material stuff just echoes into, they're the real sign, the blessings of Christ, adoption as God's children, you know, the wonderful hope of eternal life that has begun now, all those things, okay? So I just wanted to give a little bit of a, these are differences because our passage is very 
It's very Deuteronomy language. If you know Deuteronomy, if you know the blessings and the curses, this is, the, this is where Haggai's getting it from, okay? But what is true, and this is the important thing to take away of all that little tangent, God disciplines his people then and now, okay? So that is true for then and also for now. So God disciplines the returned exiles. They settle for less, they push God to his side, and there were consequences of their actions. There were consequences of their choices, which God put into place. But the question, the very important question is why? Why did God discipline his people? Because when I say discipline, we think of many different things, don't we? I know among us as a church family, many of us have military background or maybe family who are in military. Discipline is a crucial value in the military. With discipline, everyone does their duty. With discipline, everyone plays their part and the greater good is accomplished. There are many parents and grandparents in the room. Discipline is a word that you would have had to think about lots. Discipline can mean lots of things and sometimes, if we're honest, it boils down into a coping mechanism to get through the difficult day or the difficult weeks, maybe even the difficult years. For millennials like myself or even the Gen Zers among us, Discipline is a bit of an ugly word, a bit of a dirty word. You can't really criticise me. You can't really tell me that you know better and that I'm wrong. For millennials, it makes us cry. They hate me, they hate me. For, for Gen Z, for some of you even younger, there's a sense of actually if someone says I'm wrong, I'm, I'm just going to shut them out. It's just going to be done. People discipline others for all sorts of reasons. And we receive discipline with all sorts of reactions, but we must sift through all of that and ask the question, in this passage, why did God discipline his people? That's what's important. Why did God do it? And the answer is simple. So that they might repent. Let's keep reading from verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I might be glorified, says the Lord. God is saying, look, stop putting your own houses first and rebuild the temple, what I send you back to do. Rebuild the house that I may take pleasure in, that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on the ground, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labours. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord God has sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Why did God discipline his people? So that they might repent. Repentance means turning away from putting ourselves first, turning away from saying, I'm the most important one and turning to Jesus, turning to God and saying, you are the most important one. I'm gonna orient my, my whole way of thinking and my whole life for you first, God. That's what repentance is. It's a changing of priority. And God's people had got their priorities all wrong. They 
Let God's house lie in ruins, we read, and yet they were busying themselves with their own houses. They stopped asking questions that God expected them to, like in verse 8. They stopped asking what pleases God, what glorifies Him, and they were more interested in what do I want. They settled for compromising on God's desires. And God says, no, you're my people. You must put me first. And wonderfully, we read, as God disciplines his people through the consequences and the rebuke that he brings through Haggai, the people do repent. It's very refreshing to read. We don't often read that in the, New, uh, in the Old Testament. The people repent. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Now, I want to speak about the joy of repentance in just a second. But we mustn't skip over the fact the most important reason God tells his people then and now to put him first is because he deserves to be first. The most important reason God says you must repent and put me first is because God deserves to be first. Do we live our lives asking those questions in verse eight? What will give God glory? What will please him? If I asked you, do you love God? If we did a quick straw poll, lots of us in the room, some of us are still working that out, but lots of us in the room will quickly say yes. But what about do we revere God? Do we treat God as God? Do we say actually, God, you first, no matter what? Because it's easy to be flipping about God. It's easy to draw a little imaginary line in our hearts where we say, God, we'd love you to come into our hearts, but actually just, just over here and not over there, please. It's easy to not take God seriously, to repeat phrases like, well, he loves me anyway, as an excuse to, if we're honest, ignore him and disobey him. There are those of us here who are living with sexual practices, which we know he doesn't want us to, or who belittle our wives or our co-workers and just think it's no big deal. Or we indulge ourselves with our money but we neglect to be generous in the way God calls us to. And if we're honest, we say, well, that's kind of my area of life, God. You're allowed over here, but that's my area of life. I love you, but could you just stay over there? But we must remember, my friends, God is God. God isn't our mate. He's not some friendly giant in the clouds. He is God Almighty. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the righteous and holy one and he alone deserves the glory. It is right when God says, you should be seeking my glory to his people. It is right because he alone deserves the glory. When God calls us to obey him, he is the only one that it is right to say that. But let me tell you, it isn't only right to obey God. It's also wonderful. It's also the best thing you could ever do to obey God. Do you notice how Haggai summarises the people's repentance? He says they feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord and the fear of discipline couldn't be more different. You see, fear of discipline comes from not trusting the person who's disciplining you. Fear of discipline is, is coming from a place where you don't 
trust that they have good in their heart as they discipline you. It's about the teacher that always picks on you. It's like the bully that puts you in your place. It's the fear that comes from a parent who you think, I think they're acting out of anger, not out of love. That's a fear of discipline. That's how John puts it in 1 John 4. It says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. The fear of discipline is a fear that God, when he disciplines us, wants to do us harm, not good. But scripture is clear. Who does God discipline? The one he loves. You see that in the Old and the New Testament, God disciplines the one he loves. It is with a heart of love that God disciplines us and it is for his glory, yes, but just as much for our good that he corrects our behaviour. You see, fear of the Lord is not a fear of whether God is good. Fear of the Lord is the terrifying realisation that God is God. But it's in that fear, in that awesome reverence, being at the same time totally assured that he's good, that he loves me. Years ago, my dad and I went to Indianapolis uh, in America. We went to a famous motor race called the Indy 500, which some of you will have heard of. Big, big sporting event in America. And the Americans do what only the Americans do, and they sang the national anthem. And it was incredible. You, you don't get national anthem singing here the way you do in America, do you? And, and someone had the microphone, some operatic singer, and they led us in the Star Spangled Banner. And there's that note. Do you know the note? The land of the free? Oh, because it's so... And they hit that top note. And that's, that's the kind of... The, the bit which gets you because it's so high and so powerful. And as they sang the land of the free, these 30,000 or so people in the grandstands, two fighter jets flew so low that every seat in the grandstand shook and people got to their feet and they roared. That's how the Americans sing the national anthem. A little bit different to God Save the King. But in that moment, there was a sense of fear, a sense that power had come so close to us that it was dangerous. But no one was afraid that those fighter jets were gonna attack us. No one was afraid that we were at war. In fact, for the zealous Americans, there was a great delight. Yes, this is what it is to be American. My dear friends, the fear of God is trembling in the presence of a holy and righteous God while all the time beaming with joy that because of Christ, he has poured out his grace on us and we have no fear in his mighty power. Fear of the Lord and fear of discipline are two very, very different things because you see, God is good and he disciplines in love. It's right that God would correct us when we do not put him first. And this is what our returned exiles see. Because the second they obey, the second they turn, God speaks through Haggai the prophet again. And these are the words in verse 12. And Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God has sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. 
And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius. My dear friends, the second we repent, God looks us in the eyes and says, I'm with you. I am with you. You might think that when God tells you off, you have to hang your head in shame a bit. This is a lie that we live with as Christians, which is just stupid. It's ridiculous we live like this because it's just not our God. We think when God rebukes us, when he puts his finger on sin in our lives, we've got to hang our head around for a while. Yes, we repent. We bring it to him and say, Lord, that, that, I shouldn't have lived like that. I'm living for you again. But we think God keeps us in a doghouse a bit until he calls us out. That's not our God, my friends. That's not our God. The second we repent, the second they repented, what did he say? He said, yes, I'm with you. Let's go. Let's do the things I called you to. Let's do the things I made you for. We don't hang our heads in shame as Christians. We receive the mercy and the grace of God and we walk in freedom. This is our God. And so the sinful habits that you allow to linger and fester, you might think, oh, I've, you know, I've said sorry, I've turned back to him, I, you know, I'm living for him, but, but I've got to feel bad about it for a while, don't I? No, that's not our God. Who are you waiting to forgive you? If God has forgiven you, what more do you need? But when we repent, he says in love, I'm with you. My friends, are you open to discipline? Are we open to God's discipline? Are we open to our brothers and sisters who we know and trust calling out something in our lives when they see that it's off? Are we open when we listen to a sermon on Sundays to say, Lord, would you shape my heart? Would you speak to me even if Luke goes on a bit longer than he should do? Are we open? My fellow younger people in the church, are we open to saying, let me seek out the wonderful riches of the older generation in life church and ask proactively, help me walk more like Jesus. Show me things that, that would help me be more like him because I want to please him. I want to delight God because an arrogant heart says, I don't need to grow. An arrogant heart says, I'm okay actually, but a humble heart, a godly heart, says, Lord, change me. Lord, shape me. Lord, I need it. A humble heart is like clay in the Father's hands where he can shape us to being more and more like Christ. Because when we're open to God's discipline, when we let him teach us, when we let him put his finger again and again on the areas of our lives, he says, let me work on this next, Luke. Let me speak to you about that reaction you had the other day. Let me help you just as you think that through. When we're open to God, in those moments, it is our great joy to look him in the eyes as he says, because I am with you. Repentance is not a nice to have. This isn't the bonus lesson for more advanced Christians. No, repentance is at the heart of the gospel. Putting God first, letting him speak into every area of our lives, being open to the correction of our brothers and sisters, to the correction of God is right at the heart of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. Quite a fun exercise I've done many times. Look at the last words of Jesus in each of the four gospels in the beginning of Acts. See what his kind of final words are. They're always important, aren't they? You're someone's final words. And in the book of Luke, he ends you know, with a, a, a small speech.
speech to his disciples, which, which summarises the gospel. In Luke 24, 45, it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. This is the gospel, my friends, that Jesus died for us, that in resurrection, he defeated Satan and the power of sin, that we might say no to our old lives. We might say no to putting ourselves first and saying, Lord, you first. I wanna follow you now. I wanna receive all that you have for me now. Repentance is right at the heart of the gospel and it's the first step. It's right there at the first step of following Jesus. But believe me, repentance is there every day of following Jesus. Every day of humbling our hearts and saying, Lord, Show me your way. Teach me to be more like you. I've been an elder of a church for a year and a half. God has never so clearly exposed sinful corners of my heart. I'm not saying that to be, you know, I, I'm not exaggerating. There are things that God has shown me about myself, reactions that I had, ways that I act that I think, oh my goodness, I'm a work in progress. But that is the joy of following Jesus. That with a heart that is humble and open, he says, let me take you on the journey. Let me restore you and make you more and more like myself. Because when we repent, we turn again to the great obedient one, Christ, who said yes to the Father, who said, not my will, but yours, Father, who even went to the cross for us. When we turn to Christ, we go to the one who doesn't just say, I am with you, but died on the cross to be with us, who poured out his spirit to be with us. And so the people from Haggai had some confidence, but we have great confidence because when we turn to Jesus, there is no doubt he forgives us. He's received us and we are safe in him. When we expose the rotten, sinful recesses of our hearts to God, we might worry that God will crush us because he somehow discovers that we were sinful. But he doesn't shame us. He heals us. He doesn't crush us. He restores us. He doesn't condemn us. He forgives us because God is good. And yes, God is God. And he disciplines his people. He calls them to put him and him alone first. Yes, for our good, but also for his glory. And so we're going to respond. Because sometimes in the darkest of nights, the love of God shines the most beautifully. And some of you, even after I preach, which I think was quite articulately, will still be saying in your hearts, if, if I'm honest with my sin, not to other people, just to God, then the condemnation of God will fall on me and I will be a broken mess. But let me tell you, God doesn't bring condemnation in Christ. He brings conviction. Yes, that is very painful. Conviction is, is painful because we, we stand face to face with our death, but he leads us through that into life. Christ died on the Friday, but on the Sunday, he was raised to new life. And so this morning, God will put his finger on a number of people's lives. I think if we have a humble heart, all of us will have things that God wants to expose. But if we are open to the Lord's discipline, we can with great confidence look him in the eyes and hear his voice. I'm with you. 
Let's stand if we're able to. We're we're going to quietly respond. I'm not going to make anyone come to the front. We're not going to do this. This is between us and God. Uh, But as we just, uh, in the quiet, as we just let God speak, a number of you will already have heard things that God has been saying as I've been preaching, a number of things that God would have been putting his finger on. We're just going to receive from God. Now, as I say, some of that will start very painfully. And so for some of us, we will feel that pain very, in a very real way. That's okay. We'll, just leave, we'll leave people to it. This is between us and God. Don't worry. Some of us, that'll be quiet. Sometimes it's loud. That's okay too. We're, this is church. It's, it's not meant to be um, pretty and neat. It's meant to be real. And so we're going to let God speak to us if we're brave enough to. But we're not going to stay in that place because God takes us through a place of conviction and he leads us to a place of deep reassurance. Let's pray. Father, speak to us. Father, by your spirit even now, just put your hand on our lives. Put your finger on things that you're doing. Lord, expose the darkness in our hearts. Lord, the sinful recesses that we've put a line around and said, actually, that's a no-go, God. And for Father, for those who are even responding now, who know those areas, Lord. Father, bring them your comfort. Let's just receive from God for a moment. We're not going to sing right now, not going to move on, just for a minute. And just us and God, we're just going to let him speak. Jesus, even now as people um, feel a sense of condemnation, we remember your truth, words that you were not flippant about. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Thank you, Jesus. You bring conviction, not condemnation. And so Lord, as we open our hearts to you, As for a number of us, there are deep things that you are doing in the recesses of our hearts, things that you know about, we don't need to know about. Others of us don't need to know about, but you know about. Thank you, Lord, for the promise that you are with us. Thank you that Christ took the shame. Yes, the guilt. Praise God, we could talk about that all day, but the shame he took on himself in nakedness, in humiliation, he took our shame. And so, Lord, we now turn to communion. Very deliberately, we turn to communion. And we remember Jesus' words at the end of another gospel, at the end of uh, Matthew's gospel, where the Lord said, 
Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you do not kick out, but as we repent, you bring in. <laughs> as we repent, we receive your forgiveness. And so now as we take that bread, your body which was broken for us, and as we receive the new wine of the covenant, your blood which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, for a covenant that isn't based on our behaviour anymore, but on your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. We receive your forgiveness afresh. What you did ultimately at the cross, the victory you achieved once and for all. Lord, we receive again this morning as we take the bread and the wine. And so I encourage you, if there are specific things that God has said to you, as you bring, repent, in a repentant heart, you bring them to Him in openness and you say, Lord, oh, they're yours. I'm sorry that I turned my back on you, but they're yours. Take this bread and this wine. There is a receiving of forgiveness of sins as you do. Thank you, Lord Jesus that you have poured out your life for us. We worship you now, Lord. Amen.